Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode two of season two of Historical Fiction Unpacked. I am recording this intro early in February when the northeast part of the United States is being hit with an enormous snowstorm. So we have, oh, I don't even know how many inches we have outside already, but it's beautiful. I'm looking out at the snow falling all around our house as I'm recording this. And I am just, I don't know if I could ever live where it doesn't snow because I just love a good snowstorm. I should say I could never live where I can't get to the snow in the winter because we did live in California for a while and that was wonderful, but we could escape to the mountains and go skiing and stuff like that. So um, I did want to mention, however, that the conversation I'm sharing today is it was recorded at the end of 2020 in December. So I talked to Sarah Sundin about her new book, When Twilight Breaks. Um, But just for frame of reference, there are a few times we talk about 2020 and kind of the dumpster fire that it was because it applies to the topic of Sarah's new book. But I wanted to release this episode this week, the first week of February, because her new book released on Tuesday, February 2nd. So, you know, I've mentioned before that I cannot read every book that I'm going to discuss on my show ahead of time, but Sarah's is one that I did. Um, I did read When Twilight Breaks, and I absolutely loved it. So in case you haven't heard of Sarah Sundin, she enjoys writing about the adventure and romance of the World War II era. She is the best-selling author of historical novels, including When Twilight Breaks, which just released Tuesday, and the Sunrise at Normandy series. Her book, The Sky Above Us, received the 2020 Carol Award. The Sea Before Us received the 2019 Reader's Choice Award from Faith, Hope, and Love. And both When Tides Turn and Through Waters Deep were named to Booklist's 101 Best Romance Novels of the Last 10 Years. Um, I think it's interesting. Now, if you're listening to my podcast episodes in order, you will notice a little bit of a correlation. Last week when we talked to Suzanne Woods Fisher, she was talking about kind of um, just not rushing your career and enjoying motherhood and and knowing that it would be difficult to kind of do both at the same time as a writer and a mother. Um, A similar topic comes up with Sarah this week. You'll hear her talk about, she felt that the waiting part of her career before she was published was necessary and it was good that her kids were older and that she had that time to learn about her craft. So I hope, I would love to hear feedback from you guys because I just love, I love talking about the books, but I also love hearing about the author's career. And I don't know if that's the same for all of my listeners. So I would love to know if you truly enjoy that. But for now, without further ado, let's hear my conversation with Sarah Sundin. Sarah, thank you for joining me on the show today. Well, thank you for having me, Allison. You have a new novel, When Twilight Breaks, releasing on February 2nd. Can you tell us about this book? Yes, I'm very excited about this one. Um, it's one is a little different for me. I usually write during World War II, and this one occurs right before World War II in 1938, but it's set in Nazi Germany, and I have two Americans there. I have 
foreign correspondent Evelyn Brand, who's trying to make her name for herself in a male-dominated profession and trying to expose the corruption in Nazi Germany. And meanwhile, um, Peter Lang is a graduate study, student at the University of Munich. And he, on the other hand, is rather impressed with what's going on in Germany because everywhere else around the world, the depression has taken hold and it's chaos. So he sees all the order in Germany. And so they meet when she's required to interview him and they find themselves in a little bit of trouble as they're trying to expose what's going on in Germany. Right. Um, I loved this book too. It's one of the ones that I finished reading for the podcast. Um, what inspired you to write this novel? Oh, actually, this one came a little bit from my family history. My grandfather was a professor of German, like Peter wants to be. And when I went to, we went to Ellis Island a few years ago, and we were looking for family names, and his popped up. And it was his trip coming back from Germany in 1936 and realized that was from his junior year abroad. And it suddenly occurred to me, I always knew he'd studied in Germany, but it never occurred to me that he'd studied in Hitler's Germany. And right. wow, how interesting that would have been to be an American in Hitler's Germany, watching everything that was going on. So that really inspired this book, the, the thought of being part of it, but also being a little bit detached, observing. And um, obviously there were great dangers for Americans over there. And the more I learned about Americans in Nazi Germany, fascinating stories, um, correspondents, students, tourists, businessmen, and all the different varied responses they had to what was happening in Germany. It was, it was very, very much like um, modern America, very divided. And people fell into two camps, either um, applauding what Hitler was doing, peace and prosperity, uh, or just furious about the oppression and the police state and obviously the treatment of the Jews. So it's easy for us with hindsight to look back and say, well, of course, this is how I would have seen it. But that's not necessarily so. So I wanted to show those two very legitimate views and what was underneath them and explore them um, through a story. Right. Well, you did it beautifully. Now, I mean, speaking of this, the two different viewpoints, we have Evelyn Brand, who was personal freedom was, was very important to her. Yeah. And um, as you mentioned, like the societal order was important to Peter and that's mm -hmm. what attracted him to the Nazi regime at first. So how do you think we find a balance between these two ideas between freedom and order? And that's a, that's a good question. That's something they, they wrestle with in the story. And I think that most of us wrestle with it. I, at least I hope we wrestle with it in our personal lives because um, especially here in America, we really value our, our personal freedom, our individuality. But as we all know, that there have to be limits to that because at a certain point, um, you know, the, the old saying that your personal freedom ends where the other person's nose begins. Um, mm -hmm. We have certain rights to free speech and certain rights to what we want to do, but at some point it infringes on other people's rights. And so, and then the, the need for order, they, and we've been dealing with that all this, this past year with the need of, um, you know, with the rioting and the talk about the police and their, the balance between having appropriate order to keep 
society running smoothly and when that goes overboard and becomes oppression or when you pull that back and chaos happens. So it's something that's a, it's a delicate balance and a difficult balance. And I think each of us is drawn to a certain different aspect of it for, for different reasons. And, um, and I honestly don't know the answer. The answer is that we need both. We need, we need personal freedom. Um, We need the respect for the individual but we do need order in society and um, to maintain you know, the ability for people to live in peace. Right. Yeah, it is a hard question to answer. Um, mm-hmm. It's a hard balance to strike. And you're <laughs> right. It's really, it's really applicable to our lives this year, especially, um, or maybe it's just more noticeable this yeah, year. Yeah, that's more. Yeah. yeah. It's the, at the forefront of our minds. Mm-hmm. So what does this novel have to say about how we treat those who are different from us? Um, I'm just thinking of like yeah. with Ary- Aryans and Jews mm-hmm. or, or those who have different opinions, mm-hmm. um, such as, you know, the Nazis had very different opinions from um, American. Yeah. And I, and that's, that's one thing I really enjoyed exploring in the story because it came out in so many different levels. Um, it, you know, it was obvious the, the treatment of the Jews I wanted to highlight that. And I, I had a character, um, a cafe owner who was one of my favorite characters, Hair Gold. Yes, yes. He was charming. And Peter at first doesn't, isn't aware that he's Jewish. So he just makes friends with him. And Peter isn't anti-Semitic. That's just not in his makeup. But mm-hmm. as he gets to know Hair Gold and finds out how he is, what he's having to deal with and the difficulties he's having, it becomes very personal for Peter. And so we were able to watch some of the early oppression of the Jews during that time. And 1938 was really a turning point for how things got worse for the Jews. And this is before the Holocaust. This is before the um, the death camps and the deportations. And at this point, the, the Germans were actually trying to kick the Jews out of Germany, at the same time trying to make it difficult for them to do so and to impoverish them in doing so. So it was a, and while the rest of the world was saying, we don't want any more. We have massive unemployment. We have this huge depression. We don't want any refugees. And so it was this, we always talk about, well, why didn't the Jews get out? Well, they tried to, but they couldn't. They they had no go. And so I I really wanted to show that. Um, But also, it it also came up because Peter and Evelyn had different opinions at the beginning. And how were they going to talk to each other? Were they going to be you know, as we see so much today, people just yelling at each other, talking each other down, or could they have intelligent discussions? So I, I tried to show that for them, even how um, Evelyn treats men and how men treat Evelyn. So it was it was interesting to explore in different levels in the story. I did love um, how, and if this is too much of a spoiler, just That's tell right. me and I'll cut it out. But I loved how um, Peter kind of pointed out to Evelyn that the way she um, just generalized about men kind of um, was the same thing that men do to women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you know and, and of course, Evelyn is a, is a headstrong woman and she's trying to succeed in, in a, in a male driven profession of foreign correspondence and she gets mansplained and she gets condescended to, and she gets put in her place and she gets given all the fluff assignments and it's very frustrating to her. And, so she has some legitimate beefs against the male population, but right. Peter loves, I, and that's actually one of my favorite scenes where Peter turns around and says, Hey, if you apply it to all men, 
that's just as bad as how the men put you in a box because you're a woman. That was kind of a really important. And that was something for, for me as a woman to, to realize. I think we women, you know, love to, to gripe about men and oh, what the men do. And to remember that we, we can't classify all men in one category, just as like we don't want as women to be classified all in one category. That's not, that's not right. It's not fair. And I'm also speaking as um, the, the wife of a wonderful man and the, the mother of two grown men who are delightful. And I, I hate to see them classified wrongly. <laughs> so. Exactly. Yeah. I loved, I've already told you, I loved When Twilight Breaks. And, um, but as the novel progressed and things in Nazi Germany became um, more dangerous, I kept thinking, I was like thinking at the characters, like, you need to get out. You need to go back to the U.S. now. Um but I also like at the same time, I was realizing that their efforts might make a difference in what happened with the Nazi Reich. So um, in the world, you know, so um, how do you feel? Like, I, I guess I was just struck by like, this applies to our lives today. And I wonder, do you have any thoughts about how that might apply to our actions today? Um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing is also we're looking back with hindsight too, knowing yes. that things are going to get worse in Nazi Germany, not better. And so it's in a way it's easy for us to look back at those characters and say, run, run now while you can. Um, but they also didn't know what was coming. And there were often these times in Germany where things got awful and people said, okay, that's the worst. Now things are going to get better. And so they didn't know and, and we don't know. And of course, um, then you also had the personal reasons that they were staying. And I think that's when it all comes down to it, it's, it's each person's story and why, why they stay. And for Evelyn, of course, she wanted the news for her to leave um, would have been a sign of surrender of saying, yeah, I'm a woman. I can't hack it. Get me out of here. So for her, that's just inconceivable. Um, for Peter, he's gotten him by this point, he's dug himself in. Plus, he has he's under a fellowship. He has responsibilities for teaching and for research. So for him to leave would be to sacrifice the career that he's worked so hard to build up. So they both have those things going on. And um, it's interesting to see those things. And also the book I'm writing right now is set in France, 1940, 1941, when America was still neutral. And the same thing. Why didn't Americans leave? And so it's easy for us to look back and go leave. (laughs) Right. But I do wonder about um, if they had left earlier than they did, then maybe things would have gone differently. I mean, obviously your, your characters are fictional, but there were real people. There were real people who made a difference in and helped um, bring awareness to the world about what the Nazis were actually about. Oh yeah. And there were real American correspondents there on December 11th, 1941, when Germany declared war on America and they were interned. They were a couple dozen of them that were rounded up and it wasn't a bad situation. They were put in a hotel, not a very nice hotel, but they were put in a hotel. And um, so they were there right till the very end until December 11th, 1941. So they, you know, they wanted the story, they wanted the job, they wanted the, the professional 
um, credits. And also there's just, especially with correspondence, you know, there's just this love for the news and love for being in the thick of things. So th- they're a different breed. It was very interesting reading their stories. I bet. Um, that might be a good segue into telling us about your research process. Oh yeah. Each book is different. I, each, with each book, I think to myself, okay, now I know how to do this. Now I know where to go. Um, the next book will be easier, but each book <laughs> it takes me in totally different directions and which is fun. I love, I love the challenge. Um, but it, I always say my, my general research process, I start general and then I follow the story. So for this novel, even though I've been writing about the World War II era, well, I've spent several years unpublished. So I've been writing and studying the World War II era for almost 20 years now. And so I have a pretty good basic knowledge of Nazi Germany, but I needed more in-depth knowledge, especially for the 30s. So I read some really good books about um, overall Nazi Germany in the 1930s. And, and then I started getting more specific. I started reading about um, American foreign correspondence in, in Germany. Um, William Shirer was there and he has a great book called Berlin Diary where he, he chronicles what happened over there. And I read more article, more stuff about um, Americans in Germany. There's a great book about a couple, I think two or three books about Americans in Germany. And I, how to learn about um, Peter's language things, which actually spent, sent me into my own grandfather's research, which was fun. I Googled my grandfather's name and I found an article that he'd written. So I got to read and he died before I was born. So I, I never met him. So reading this article he'd written and hearing his voice and, and I was thrilled because he was actually a very good writer, just very clear and concise and beautiful use of language. And he had humor and it was an academic article. And I was like, I love him. He's using humor in an academic article. <laughs> I kind of um, went everywhere. <laughs> the only thing I couldn't do with this book, which kills me, is um, we were supposed to be um, supposed to go to Germany and um, be able to see these sites. And I, I had been there, but it had been 10 years. And I really wanted to go and see the sites. But COVID, you know. So. Yeah, COVID messed up travel plans for a lot of people Everybody this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, you've written a lot of series. And how, how was it different for you to write a standalone novel? It did feel different. And I'm so in, in some ways, it was very freeing, because when I write a series, I have to really know what's going on in all three books, to a certain extent before I start the first book, because mm. there's going to be um, if not overlap, there's going to be continuity. So I really need to kind of know all the characters, especially if they're going to show up in the other books. Um, the last series I wrote, Sunrise at Normandy, which was a little unusual because all three books took place simultaneously with three brothers who were estranged from each other. They weren't talking to each other. So I had to absolutely know the timeline for each of the three stories because letters were passing. And so in a way, it was it was fun because I was able to play with this, really develop this whole family and this tragedy that had fallen over this family. And I was also able to explore D-Day from three different angles. But um, there were also some difficulties because anything I wrote in book one was now um, basically gospel truth, and therefore it had to apply in books two and three. So there were some constrictions. So writing When Twilight Breaks was a little bit freeing in that respect. I didn't really have to think about the other books. Um, Although, of course, being who I am, I actually ended up working in 
the the heroes of the next two books are Peter's best friends from Harvard. So they kind of make cameo appearances, at least in, in names. <laughs> that was like, quite oh, I should not have done that. But uh, but anyway, I did it because I, I, I end up thinking like a series writer. But the nice thing is they really it doesn't really affect the other books. So, um yeah, it was right, but that's cool. That's neat. Yeah, it was kind of a it'll be a little fun little thing there for the readers of the next couple books, but it's not like, oh no, I didn't read book one. Now I can't read book two. So there'll be none of that. So yeah. Yeah. Um so tell me what what do you hope readers will learn from this book? I think mostly to listen to other people and to respect their opinions and to treat each other with kindness and compassion and understanding and to really be aware of oppression around us and how dangerous it is and how insidious it is. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, So you have quite an illustrious career right now. You've been nominated several times for Christie's. You've won a Christie. Um, No, I I did not win. the. I, I won the Carol. Oh, you won a Carol. I'm sorry. Yeah. I've read somewhere that you won a Christie. But yeah, no, I was nominated this year. That was my first time nominated for the Christie. Oh, it was your first nomination. Congratulations. Thank Congratulations. you. I was really excited about that. Yeah. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about what path you've taken through your career? Yeah, You mentioned that you've been studying World War II for 20 years. So I assume that's when you began writing novels about it. Yeah, I did not plan to be a writer. I went to, I, I have a degree in chemistry. I received a doctorate in pharmacy, became a pharmacist, and I loved it. I It's also a career that's really friendly for women. I was able to work part-time and stay home with my kids. So it was really, in the year 2000, I had three little kids and I had, you know, one, two in school and one in diapers and working one day a week in pharmacy. And I thought, this is it. This is perfect. (laughs) And then I woke up one morning with a story idea. And I've always been a reader, um, but I've never written a story before and never thought I would write a story other than, you know, when you're six years old and every little girl who wants to, who loves to read, thinks that she's going to write a book. Um, Mm -hmm. I never seriously considered it. And the story idea would not leave me alone. And so finally, I'm going and finding my kids' um, lined paper and pulling out a pencil. And I'm opening up a novel to figure out how to punctuate dialogue. Because remember, I was a chemistry major. (laughs) (laughs) This is a long time ago for me. So I just kind of started writing this book literally with pencil on paper and I didn't have the guts to even tell my husband what I was doing for about a week. And then finally, I felt like I was confessing to him because he's a pharmacist too. So he thought he'd married this logical left brain person. And then he ended up with um, a, a creative. And <laughs> like, what? Wow. So, but in reality, I'm kind of a balanced left brain, right brain person. I'm very analytical for a writer, but I'm very, I'm more creative than most pharmacists. So I'm kind of <laughs> right weird limbo land, but so yeah, then I started writing and it took me a few years before I had the the guts and the the ability to go to a writer's conference. And I went to Mount Hermon in 2003, quivering and shaking, terrified that people were going to read my book and say, 
this is why pharmacists shouldn't write books. <laughs> mm. So, but um, God had Lorraine Snelling read my manuscript and she basically took me by the hand and led me to all the editors and agents and said, talk to this woman. And so wow. amazing. She's, she's, she's just an incredible woman. But anyway, um, I ended up with a bunch of rejection letters. I actually ended up with five years of rejections, but by then, but that was the process. It was a part to build me as a human being, to build me as a writer for me to learn about the industry. And also, as I found out for my kids to grow up a little bit. So by the time I got my contract in 2008, my youngest was 10 years old. So no diapers, um, you know, he can make his own lunch. Uh, So, you know, much more freedom. My, my oldest had just gotten his driver's license. I was still only working one day a week in pharmacy. I had the time to work 40 hours a week, which is what I needed to do as a writer. And so God very kindly made me wait five years until I was ready in many ways. And um, so I got the contract in 2008. My first book came out in 2010, almost to the day I had the dream 10 years earlier to start my first novel. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, weird story, but it worked. (laughs) Yeah, and I keep hearing... um, I was talking to another author who gave me a kind of a similar story about having to wait about it not happening as soon as she mm-hmm. wanted to, but that that was better in the long it's run. Better. Yeah. So I'm always, when I talk to beginning writers, new writers, and they're so anxious to get published, and I totally understand. I was there and I just, of course, when I started, self-publishing really wasn't an option. Self-publishing was sending a couple thousand dollars to a vanity press and ending up with a book a garage full of books that you couldn't sell. And so that was never appealing to me, but now you can put it up on Amazon for next to nothing. And so, you know, talking to these young writers, especially when they're really promising and you know, they are really excited about just, I'm going to just put it up on Amazon. It's like, yes, but I think you have the potential to really make it in the traditional market. It's like, I would encourage you to, to let those rejection letters come, to work on your craft, to get to know right. the industry, to make those connections and let it, let the rejection happen to you. And part of it is, is the, is your character. Uh, it, it builds you and it humbles you, which is important when you get your first reviews and somebody says, this is a, I think I had one that said, this is a, a load of nacho cheese on top of cheese on top of cheese. And she just thought, <sighs> So clever. And I'm like, oh, I don't write cheesy. Hey, you. <laughs> no. But anyway, when those when those mean reviews come in, you've had those years to kind of to you know to to get used to it and to prepare yourself. So you learn not to take it as personally and to separate that from your, your the personal insult from the professional. That's not their taste. That's okay. I don't like every book I read. That's all right. So um, I really try to encourage young writers to to at least let yourselves accumulate some rejection letters before you self-publish um, and then make sure you're self-publishing for the right reasons. Is it um, because you are writing a niche book that really will not settle, sell in the traditional market? Then yes, please self-publish. Have you tried every outlet and all your friends are saying, yeah, it's time. Well, then that's very, probably a very good time. But if it's you just finished a an, an NaNoWriMo and your mom says it's great, 
you might need some more time. <laughs> right. That's a really good, a good point. Um, cause there's a time to self publish, publish, there but there's yeah. also a time to just, um, a lot of new writers need to grow in their craft. Yeah, I need it. I mean, I look at the first draft of my, especially my very first novel. Oh my. <laughs> oh, glad self-publishing wasn't an option. Let, let me give me some perspective. This, this book has not been published by the way. It probably, it never will be. It never will be published. The first draft of my first novel, which was a simple contemporary romance was 750 pages. Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cute line that I could think of went in that story. Every little conversation they had went in the story. And then after they got together, I kept writing because I didn't want it to end. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it was a lot of fun to write. It was. It was. And, and that's the thing. It's like, I don't regret any a minute of it because it taught me to write. And then I went to my very first writer's conference and Lee Roddy was teaching and, and he's, um, you know, a wonderful, uh, man, he had been a wonderful mentor to so many Christian writers. And I didn't know who he was because I knew nothing. Mm -hmm. And I just remember him looking and I mentioned, he said, yeah, contemporary novel should be around 350 pages. And I rose my hand and said, mine's 750. And his eyes just looked out. <laughs> he said, you need to chop that in half. And I'm thinking to myself, that's like asking me to cut off both my legs. <laughs> but I gritted my teeth. I applied everything I'd learned in those, the, those workshops. I bought books on the writing craft and I cut that book in half. Right. Got it down to 350. It's actually more than pages. I more than half. I got it down to 350 pages. Um, it still wasn't a good book, but I learned <laughs> through that process and I'm so thankful I did. So, um, yeah, so that book taught me a lot of things. It taught me my book was not gospel truth, and I needed it, <laughs> and that every word was could be cut and should be. And I learned so much about story structure and about character development and the proper way to write fiction. And it was it was a great learning experience. Mm. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that you're writing another book. Can you tell us more about that? Oh uh, yeah, um, a little bit. The we don't have a title yet. Um, okay. it, it is set in Paris in 1941, primarily. And it also follows two Americans. And this is a time when America was still neutral. And there were there was a community of about 2,000 Americans that were in Paris between June 1940 and December 1941. So very interesting. A lot of them were conducting business. Some of them were artists. And so you had this um, interesting American community within Paris. So I have a woman who is running a bookstore and it's an English language bookstore and it's modeled on Shakespeare and company, which is a, a famous English language bookstore in Paris that was run by an American woman. And she stayed through the war and hers didn't close until December, 1941. And and then I have an American businessman. He runs a, an automobile factory in Paris. And he's being told by, he wants to go home. Um, but his, an American military attache encourages him to stay so he can pass on secrets to, military secrets to the Americans. So everybody thinks he's a collaborator working with, you know, he's selling trucks to the Nazis. But... Mm. He's actually 
basically a spy for America. So he he deals with everybody thinking poorly of him. And he's very lonely. His wife just died. He's raising his little girl by himself. So um, it's been a fun story. And then um, Lucy, the, the heroine, the resistance uses the books in her store to pass messages to each other. So it's, it's, a, it's been a fun story to write. Wow, that's cool. So I'm having read When Twilight Breaks, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking I know what character this yes. is about. <laughs> so this is a question I ask all of my guests. Um, how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Hmm. We, we touched on it a little oh, bit yeah. earlier. but Oh, so many ways. Um, first of all, I think what helps me the most is that when times are hard, and I'm reading about what's going on when times are really, really hard. It really helps me to get through. And obviously, 2020 has just been a bear of a year. And I, I don't know of anybody who says, hey, this is my best year yet. I mean, we're all saying this is the worst year yet. And um, and, and even and that's not even uh, we're talking all the things that are on the surface. But then there's other things that are happening on very personal levels for people. So it's been a very, very difficult year. And a lot of people are despairing and saying, oh, it's never been this bad. And we never had to deal with anything like this before. And I think most of us have grown up in basic times of peace and prosperity. So for to read about history, to learn about times when things were very difficult and where if you said the wrong thing, you could die. I think that's very sobering, and I think it's also very encouraging because we can look back on that and go, if they can make it through when times are even more difficult than they are now, then I can make it through now. And, and that's why I like to show characters of faith, because I think faith is so crucial to weathering those hard times, So um, and to really lean on the Lord when those times are hard. Right. That's a really great point. And I find that too with all the the historical fiction I've been reading this year. I mean, I love, I read a lot of historical fiction any year, but with this podcast, I've been reading even more. Um, and I found that also that thinking, look at what people have lived through. Look at what we've survived. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, God will see us through 2020 yeah. and this pandemic as well. <laughs> yes. And I think also it's, um, you know, the old saying, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And I think there's there's so much truth in that, in knowing history and recognizing patterns. And then when you see those patterns developing in modern times, that's when we need to watch out. So it was very sobering. Um, I saw a lot of parallels between the 1930s and today, um, mm-hmm. rather scary for me. and. Um, you know, you're seeing the division and the the anger and the rising violence and seeing the potential for oppression and for, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm feeling very emotional because I just, uh, it's, it's terrifying on both sides and I'm not trying to pick one political side over the other. And I think that's one of the problems we have in America today is that we come at everything from the right or the left and we fail. And if we've chosen the right, then everything on the left is wrong. And if we've chosen the left, everything on the right is wrong. Instead of saying some of the things they're doing are right and some of the things they're doing are wrong and let's meet in the middle. And um, and to label things that are happening on our own sides is wrong. It's like that is a horrible thing 
that this leader that I, I do like this leader, but what he's doing is horrible. And I, I think we need to um, be able to separate these things out. Right. Yeah, you can't see me, but I'm nodding along to yeah. everything you're saying. <laughs> and I'm trying so hard not to be political here. And um, <laughs> it's yeah. very difficult for me to hold my tongue this past year. And I, I do so for many reasons. First of all, I don't think that um, social media is the way to change people's minds. And mm-hmm. it only creates more division. And um, I, I don't know if I can, I, I have these conversations in, with people in, in private and just try to open awareness because these are people I love and um, on both sides and just trying to help people see that um, the vast majority of people have chosen their opinions for good reasons but then those can get warped and just watch for the warping. Right. Yeah. It's something to watch for mm-hmm. in our, in our own hearts. Yeah. Yeah. So Sarah, it was great talking with you. How can listeners purchase your new book? Um, th- well, first of all, it can be purchased at your local bookstore. If your bookstore does not carry it, Make sure you ask them to order it for you because many bookstores are thrilled to order it for you. And that way you keep your local bookstore open, which is so important in 2020. Um, it's also available for order online at all your major online vendors, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Christianbook.com. So um, buy it wherever you like it. <laughs> Great. And what's the best way to follow you online? What social media do you use the most? Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, all at Sarah Sundin and my website, um, sarahsundin.com. I have, I post a today in world war II history feature and which has been a lot of fun. And I'll have a lot of articles about, um, that are related to this novel on my website when the book comes out. Oh, great. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today, Sarah. Well, thank you for having me. So guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I do want to encourage you to get Sarah's book. It was really wonderful. And you can find that at the places that she mentioned, of course. But also, I linked to lots of things in my show notes. So you can always find my show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. And there's a list of all the episodes and each episode has show notes with it there. And there will be links in there to get to various things, um, including the books we mentioned on on the show. So um, that's an easy way to find the books to purchase. Also, I just want to encourage you guys, if you don't follow me on Instagram, please do, because I try to hop on there. I didn't do it. I didn't get to do it last week for last week's episode, but um, I try to get on my stories sometime on Thursday, if not on Friday, and talk to you guys about the episode. And I have a few questions I kind of want your feedback on. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I'd love to know if you guys like hearing about the author's career as well as about their books. And I'm always happy to hear from you guys on there. But of course, you can also go to my website and and shoot me an email. And today I'm going to leave you with a quote from Kurt Vonnegut 
He said, history is merely a list of surprises. It can only prepare us to be surprised yet again. So friends, keep reading historical fiction and I'll see you next week. 